It is lovely to be here. It's actually three years since I was uh, with Grace Church. It was this Sunday, strange enough, three years ago, just before lockdown started. Happy days. So there was a great deal of nervousness that day in the congregation. A lot of face masks. Uh, it's good to feel a bit more relaxed here this afternoon. I know there's huge churn because of London. How many people have joined this church in the last three years? Just stick up a hand to give me a sense of how... Yeah, most of you probably. Well, hello. Welcome. It's nice to have you here. Uh, it's good to be part of this church. It is lovely to be here. Also, last time I was here, I spoke from the book of Ephesians, and I understand that you're in a, in a substantial series in Ephesians at the moment, so obviously I teed that up nicely three years ago, did the preparatory work, so laid the foundations, all the good stuff. Right, today I want to speak on the theme of prayer on the theme of prayer. It is good to pray. Andrew's just been exhorting you to come to pre-service prayer when that gets going. That's great. We do a similar thing in our church. It's always a good time to gather uh, a little bit before the service starts, gather with others, seek God's blessing, pray for what's going to happen that day, look for him to speak to us. Prayer is how we communicate with God. It's about how we speak to him, hear him speaking to us. It's about relationship with God. And where I want to draw from today is what what we call the Lord's Prayer. Now the Lord's Prayer as we normally say it goes like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, that prayer, that for many of us very familiar prayer, is recorded uh, in two places in the scriptures, in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6. And this is one of those occasions where it's really helpful to have a physical Bible rather than a phone, because you can uh, actually get a better sense of how the text holds together and where the Lord's Prayer fits in the, uh, in, in the whole picture of, of the text. And those two accounts, Luke 11 and Matthew 6, they're slightly different versions of the Lord's Prayer. We've got the Matthew 6 one up on the screen. And, uh, but they're slightly different. Maybe Jesus taught on this subject a couple of different times and spoke different versions of this prayer. And the way that we normally say it, the way that I've just read it, also includes a closing line, what is known as a doxology, a, a hymn of praise, a declaration of praise, a summary statement of what has gone before, giving praise to God. Uh, for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, you don't find that line in either Matthew six or Luke eleven, but Christians have prayed that as part of the Lord's Prayer since at least the second, possibly the first century. So for almost the entire history of the church, Christians have prayed the Lord's Prayer in that form with that doxology, that rounding off hymn of praise at the end of it. And uh, this prayer really helps us. Let me give you a couple of reasons why the Lord's Prayer is, is helpful for us, why how it's helped me. One thing to think about is the way that structure and spontaneity should not be 
opponents shouldn't pull apart but actually can help one another. Now, I'm charismatic. That means that I believe that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and he releases gifts and, and expressions of praise to us which often are spontaneous and unplanned. So normally in our services, I think it's the same here, prayers and that kind of thing would not be planned, would not be written out. We look for the Spirit of God to inspire us, fill us and uh, our praise and our prayers flow out of our mouths in response to that. But nonetheless, structure can be helpful to us. Structure can actually help to increase spontaneity sometimes rather than decrease it. You see this particularly anything, any area of life which requires some kind of skill. If you want to be fluent musically, or if you want to be fluent athletically, or if you want to be effective in your business life, it's helpful to learn some disciplines, to have some structures. If you, for some reason, which to me is unimaginable, but if you wanted to become an efficient, fluent golfer, something completely outside my comprehension, you'd have to spend a lot of time learning the basics, how to hold the racket properly, all that kind of stuff, in order, in order then to be able to have the fluency, the spontaneity to be able to adapt and adjust wherever you happen to be on the track where you play golf. That's how life is. You have to learn some disciplines in order to learn some spontaneity. And, and the Lord's Prayer, which is a structure, can actually help us to be more spontaneous in our prayers. Now, Jesus was the most charismatic person who ever lived in every sense of that word. And yet when his disciples said to him, teach us how to pray, what he gave them was a structure, what he gave them was the Lord's Prayer. And my experience of prayer has been that when I've been struggling in prayer, often it has been the structure of the Lord's Prayer which has enabled me then to expand into spontaneity of prayer and praise. I just begin to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father. Start to think about God as my Father. Start to pray the clauses of the Lord's Prayer. And out of the structure, spontaneity and freedom in prayer develop. So that's one reason why it's good to be familiar with the Lord's Prayer. Another thing about the Lord's Prayer is that praying the Lord's Prayer is a way of emphasizing Christian unity. This is a prayer that Christians have been praying for the last 2,000 years. And Christians around the world pray this prayer today. In churches around the world, there would have been millions and millions of Christians who together would have said the Lord's Prayer. And a little, a little while after I finish speaking, we're going to be taking communion together, which is the great sign of our communion, of our union, of our union with God and our communion with one another, that we are united as one people, one body, through Christ. And taking the bread and the wine illustrates and emphasizes and reinforces that. And as we do that, we're reminded that's not true only for those of us who are in the room now, here, but for all of God's people around the world and throughout time. That when we take bread and wine, we're reminded that we are bound into one body with all God's people, wherever they may be and whenever they might have lived. It's an amazing sign and declaration of our unity together. When we say the Lord's Prayer together, it's another way of expressing our unity with believers throughout all time and throughout all space. That because this is a prayer that Christians everywhere in the world throughout the last 2,000 years have said. And so when we say the Lord's Prayer, we're in a sense binding ourselves again to the community of the people of God, to the saints of God. And so that's why it's a wonderful and a beautiful thing to say the Lord's Prayer together. Now, where I want to focus this afternoon is on the central clause of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I think it's important as we come to this that we see that when Jesus taught this prayer, we need to see that the prayer doesn't stand in isolation in either Matthew 6 or Luke 11. as a context in which Jesus taught this prayer. Now, in Luke's account, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this way immediately after the story of Jesus being with his friends Mary and Martha. This is what it says, Luke 10 verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha was distracted by all the preparations. Martha is getting a meal right, and she wants it to be properly done. Jesus, the great teacher, the great rabbi, has come to her house. He's honored her house with his presence. And she wants to serve him and put on a good dinner for him as, as, he, as, as his status deserves. But it's not only Jesus, but there's also the 12 disciples. And there's probably a whole other crowd of people who are also following along behind. So this isn't just a simple meal. This is something which is going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of expense, a lot of preparation, because it's for a lot of people. And that is stressful. And it's amazing how food can cause stress. If you ever do prepare a dinner for a significant number of people, that can be a very stressful thing to do. I've done that a few times. I, I'm fairly competent and comfortable at cooking for large numbers. Grace and I have done that, a lot of that throughout our, our ministry life. Uh, and so we can do that. Uh, just as we came out of the pandemic, we hadn't met together for a long time, and I said, let's have a church barbecue, and I did a barbecue for 150 people, and that kind of thing. It's fine, I'm happy doing that, but it can also be very, very stressful if things aren't working quite as they should be. And some people are particularly triggered by food stuff. There's a, a woman in our church, a dear sister, but because of her history, anything to do with food, she gets highly stressed and becomes often a real problem and has to be managed because food is very stressful for her. But in my own experience, we've had uh, significant issues with eating disorders in our household with a couple of our kids, and food is very stressful. And maybe in this room, some of you can relate to that in terms of things you've experienced yourselves. That for you, food might be a, a stress trigger. And that's the case here with Martha. She's incredibly stressed, anxious, worried because she's trying to get dinner ready and her sister isn't helping her. And Jesus tells her that she's got her focus wrong. In a sense, Jesus says to her, look, Martha, the food can take care of itself. What you need to do is trust God. What you need to do is trust God to give you this day your daily bread. And then the very next portion of scripture that we have in Luke after that encounter is Jesus teaching the Lord's Prayer and teaching his disciples to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. 
I think we're meant to see that connection. There's a story about a woman who's got massively stressful about preparing a meal. Next thing, next part of the scripture is Jesus teaching us, give us this day our daily bread. It's a question of trust in a moment of stress. Now, Matthew's account in Matthew 6 is interesting as well, where that appears, because this, uh, in, in this uh, part of scripture. It comes in the extended portion of scripture which we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus teaching his disciples and the crowd and there's a whole series of, of teaching nuggets that Jesus lays down and sometimes when you're reading this, this portion of the Gospel of Matthew it can seem almost disconnected that there's all these different sort of random teaching things it feels like Jesus is throwing in. And, but if you read it carefully you can see that it's not random, it's more like links in a chain which all hold together and do connect and make sense together when you read it carefully. And that's the case with the Lord's Prayer here because Jesus' teaching on the Lord's Prayer is sandwiched between teaching about money. So Jesus' teaching teaches the Lord's Prayer and he teaches about how to provide for the needy and then he teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer and also teaches them about fasting and then he teaches them about laying up treasures in heaven about where our financial focus should be. How are God's people meant to handle their money? What we see here in Matthew 6 is that God's people are to handle their money with generosity, that Christians are to be open-handed, we're to be generous to others, that we're to handle our finances with faith that we trust God for his ability to supply for us. Your Father in heaven knows the sparrows. Surely he'll care for you. Trust God. And we're to handle our money by not worrying about it. Do not worry, Jesus says. Don't worry. So how are Christians to handle their stuff? Generosity, faith, and without anxiety, without worry. And then in the middle of that teaching about money, right in the middle of that teaching, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And that fits, because that is connected to concerns, worries about money. That you come to God, you trust him. It's about having faith in him. These accounts in Matthew and Luke are not randomly arranged. We're meant to see the connection. We're meant to see where it fits. We also need to think about the, the wider social context in which Jesus was ministering because the people to whom Jesus is speaking would have known, would have known real, actual, physical hunger. They would have been hungry people a lot of the time. And this is hard for us to relate to because, thank God, we do not live in a context where we are short of food. Now, at the moment, about 11% of the world's population don't have enough food. The global population is about 8 billion people or something, so 800 million or something people do not have enough food or go to bed hungry tonight. Before the pandemic, back in 2019, it was about 9% of the world's population didn't have enough food. Pandemic has made that worse. A couple of hundred million extra people now going to bed hungry because of the pandemic. But the overall picture, actually, of global hunger is pretty remarkable. We tend to be very pessimistic and negative, thinking that everything is getting worse in the world the whole time, even when that's not true. Only 40 years ago, 40% of the world's population lived in absolute poverty. 
Only 40 years ago, 40% of the world's population lived in absolute poverty, would have known daily hunger. That now is about 10% of the world's population. That is a remarkable, miraculous transformation in global prosperity, which we should give thanks to God for. But most people throughout history will have experienced hunger. It was only in 1850, not even 200 years ago, that the average available calories for people in the UK reached what we would now consider the recommended daily amounts. The recommended daily calorie intake for a male is about 2,500 calories, for women it's a little bit less. It was only in 1850 that there were 2,500 calories available to each person in the UK. So before that, most people would have been, by our standards, malnourished. Most people would have been hungry a lot of the time. That's why if you go to the Tower of London, look at the suits of armour, they look like they're built for children. Because most people in the Middle Ages would have been very small because they would have been very hungry and they just didn't grow to the potential that they should have had. And that experience of hunger would have been true of the people that Jesus is speaking to, and it would have been true of Jesus himself as well. That in the context, the culture in which Jesus was ministering, famine was an ever-present threat and too often a reality. There wasn't the same food supplies we had. Erratic farming, weather, war, pests meant that food wasn't plentifully available as we know it. And it's that very real experience of hunger, I think, which is part of the reason why there is such a focus on food in the Gospels. You read the Gospels and food is mentioned all the time. Why? Because people would have been hungry all the time. They were thinking about food all the time. And we can see examples of the disciples getting confused because of this. In Matthew 16, we read an example of this. They were rowing across the lake and it says, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith. See, this is a faith issue again. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves? with which I fed the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves with which I fed the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now when we read that story we probably get the point Jesus is trying to make quickly. He's talking about the teaching of these religious leaders who are teaching wrong. And he's warning his disciples about that. They don't hear that. They think he's talking about actual bread. Why do they think he's talking about actual bread? Well, I think we're meant to see the comedy. This is a, a comedy kind of moment. It's a kind of you're so stupid kind of moment. They're not hearing what Jesus is saying because they think he's talking about actual bread. Now, why are they thinking about real bread rather than seeing what Jesus is talking about? It's probably because they were hungry. First of all, they were young men. A lot of you in this room are young men. You know what it's like. Young men often are hungry. 
the amount that a young man can eat is often stupefying. People have, lots of you now are parents. Well, that wasn't the case the first time I came here a few years ago. It's great. Most of the kids here are young. In a few years' time, when you've got teenage boys, the mums are going to be sitting at the table in your houses, open-mouthed, looking at your sons, saying, how on earth can you still be hungry? How can you still be eating? And you'll have some 14-year-old who by that stage is about six foot five and still only about that wide, and he is just stuffing himself full of food. How can you eat 10 Weetabix for breakfast? It's just how young men are. Now, these were young men, and they had been rowing across the lake, so they probably were hungry. They were young men. They were hungry. They had bread on the brain. And you can imagine the situation from what we know about the disciples. They get to the other side of the lake, and they've got no bread. What moron forgot to bring the sandwiches? And we know something of the personality of some of the disciples, and I can imagine some of the conversations that were going on. I can imagine Peter, who is the leader, always steps up to lead, and some of them looking at Peter and saying, Peter, you're the one who always takes the lead. You should organize lunch. You've always got so much to say for yourself. Where are the sandwiches? Or you can imagine Peter saying, well, Andrew, it's you who found the loaves and the fish when Jesus fed the 5,000. Why haven't you got this sorted this time? Or you can imagine them saying to Judas, because Judas had the money, Judas, why didn't you buy some? And Judas saying, why does everybody always blame me for everything? And I can imagine James and John, the sons of thunder, starting a fight because they're so hangry because they haven't got any food. And Jesus is trying to say to them, fellas... I'm not talking about bread. I'm talking about the Pharisees. They had bread in the brain. Now, why belabor all this context stuff? It's because if we're going to see the power of what Jesus teaches us to pray here, give us this day our daily bread, we need to understand what hunger is. If you're not hungry... You're not going to pray this prayer with the kind of determination and passion that you should. So really the question today is, what are you hungry for? Where is your hunger? What is it you're hungry for? This is a, this is a prayer for the hungry. This is a prayer for those who are experiencing lack. These, this is a prayer for those who are in pressure, feeling stress, and need to learn trust and faith that God can provide. That's who this is a prayer for. for. Uh, and our problem often is that we can be too full. Too full of all kinds of stuff. And we don't realize what we should be really hungry for. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a... This line of the prayer is a daily prayer. This is a prayer that you need to pray every day. It's a prayer that I need to pray every day. It's a prayer I do pray pretty much every day. Even if you don't pray the rest of the Lord's Prayer, you need this line of the Lord's Prayer every day. Lord, this day, give me my daily bread. This day, forgive me my sins. This day, help me forgive those who sin against me. This day, lead me not into temptation. This day, deliver me from evil. This is a daily prayer for us. Let's, let's break it down and look at each part of the prayer. First, give us this day our daily bread. Now, as we've seen, this starts with practical need. If you're living in first century 
Palestine, and you know literal hunger a lot of the time, your prayer, your everyday prayer is going to be, God, give me this day bread, because that's what you most need or you're going to starve. And, and if you're living in poverty somewhere in the world and you don't have a cupboard full of food, you don't have a fridge or a freezer to keep stuff in, every day is a fresh hunt for food. For those 800 million or so living in hunger, every day is a fresh hunt for food. And for those people, you can imagine them praying with real determination, give me bread because bread is what they most need. Today I have no food, please provide it for me. And for those of us who know Jesus, this prayer really focuses for us where our trust is. What do we trust? Who do we trust? Are we going to be like Martha, distracted, anxious, and worried? Or are we going to believe in the one who taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread? Now, in our context, thank God, the question is not normally actual bread, not actually food. Now, of course, there are in the UK people without enough food. We've seen that in the explosion of food banks in recent years. But as you walk through the streets of London, even with rough sleepers and the rest, there are not many people who are actually starving to death. The shortage of actual food isn't our primary problem in our context. So for us... Bread is likely to be something else than actual bread. For many people, it's, it's money. And remember again where the teaching comes. Matthew 6, the teaching, give us this day, our daily bread, comes in the middle of teaching about money, how to feel about that. And it, this might be the issue for you. In this room, I'm sure there's a wide divergence of financial experience at the moment. It might be that your experience, your daily bread, is a significant lack of financial supply. It might be that you're living in your tiny room next to the railway line that you can touch every wall of your house without moving your feet. It's costing you a thousand pounds a week and everything falls off the shelf when the train comes by and you're thinking, how on earth am I going to pay the bills? How on earth am I going to move out of here and find somewhere better? And it might be that your daily bread prayer is, Lord, I do need financial provision just to make life work better than it currently is. Others in this room, that's not the case. Others in this room, you're experiencing the flip side of London life, that you're earning big money, that in any global or historical terms, you are incomprehensibly rich. And so your prayer isn't really, or shouldn't be, give me my daily bread in terms of finance, but it might be something else. For a whole crowd of people in this room, it's going to be emotional needs. That where your real lack your hunger is you just feel the emotional need. Something going on emotionally, something with your mental health, where you just know you're hungry, you're in need. For others, it's going to be work pressures, the relentless pressure of the workplace. For others, it's going to be family or relational or friendship stuff. But all of us are going to have things in our lives where we know that we lack and we know that we can be prone to stress and anxiety and worry. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Bread is the most basic, essential foodstuff, the most necessary thing. Uh, in our context, again, it's so hard for us to grasp that because even bread itself has become something controversial. How many different kinds of bread have we got ready lined up for us for communion later? With uh, regular bread and gluten-free bread and special bread and different kinds of bread. Bread itself has become complex for us. 
but it's the most basic thing of life. And I think that means that this prayer is infinitely expandable. Give us this day our daily bread. What is your most basic need? Your most profound hunger today? Whatever, whatever is my most essential need today, Lord, would you provide it to me? I want to trust you. I don't want to be give in to anxiety and worry. I want to trust that you are able to supply for me. And so this is a prayer that I pray for myself all the time in all the things in my life where I know I lack and where I know that I'm prone to get stressed and prone to worry and give in to anxiety, to try and intentionally turn my gaze to Jesus and say, Lord, you taught us to pray this way. In this, would you give me my daily bread? And as a pastor, when I pray for people, which I often do, have the privilege of often praying for people, often I'll pray, Lord, give them their daily bread. In whatever situation that might be, financial pressures, family pressures, work pressures, emotional health pressures, Lord supply, give us this day our daily bread. Don't worry about tomorrow, Jesus said, this day, Lord give me my daily bread. And so that's a prayer you need to pray, you need to pray it daily, you need to pray it today. Second part of this, part of the prayer, forgive us our sins. Forgive us our sins. I think there are two directions which Christians are likely to pull in, two mistakes. One is that we can become very fearful or introspective or legalistic. We can fail to grasp the completed work of Christ, what Christ's sacrifice on the cross means for us. Now, Andrew started the service by reading from Hebrews 10. And in Hebrews 9 and 10 especially, we get a beautiful, powerful description of what it means for Jesus to have died and paid the penalty of our sins. It says in Hebrews 9 that he has been offered once to bear the sins of many. It says in Hebrews 10 that where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no longer any offering for sin. The work of Christ is final and complete. If you put your trust in Jesus, there is nothing else which needs to be done. You are made righteous in the sight of God. You are welcomed and embraced by your heavenly Father. You are declared to be pure and holy and acceptable, not because of what you've done but because of what Christ has done his righteousness becomes your righteousness it's extraordinary but if we fail to grasp that truth we can become very fearful introspective and legalistic we're always thinking have I been good enough have I done well enough have I behaved as a Christian as I should? And I know that I haven't. And that makes me feel guilty. And that makes me feel fearful. And that makes me feel far from God rather than near to him. And that becomes a hamster wheel of spiritual self-destruction. And so we need to grasp the completed finished work of Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. But a second danger for us as Christians is that we can grasp that wonderful Christ's death and resurrection means that his righteousness and life are now mine and that can lead to us wrongly becoming casual about what Jesus has done for us oh Jesus has dealt with it all therefore it doesn't really matter what I do and that's not true either we need to avoid those two perils Actually, when we come to communion in a moment, that's a good test of, of how we're doing with this. If we, if we come to communion terribly fearful, terribly introspective, 
examining ourselves terribly deeply, trying to record every way in which you've sinned and failed this week, that's a sign that you're not receiving and embracing all that Christ has for you, his completed work at the cross. But if you come to communion casually, that could be a sign that you're not treating what Christ has done with the awe and reverence which it deserves, the wonder and the worship. As forgiven people, we ask for forgiveness. We come to communion and we say, Lord, you've forgiven me. Amazing. I'm righteous. Not because of myself, but because of you. And so, Lord, as a righteous person, as a forgiven person, I come to you again, confessing my need of you and asking for you to forgive me once more. And it's a place of joy and liberty. And then we're taught to forgive those who sin against us. And the problem with this is that the way that Jesus teaches this, there doesn't seem to be any way around this dynamic. That it seems to be that the way that we experience God's forgiveness, the way that we feel God's forgiveness, is in some way connected to the degree in which we forgive others. Now we're forgiven people, we come to Christ, you put your trust in him, you are forgiven, and we are then called to live in forgiveness towards others. And the degree to which we experience, feel our own forgiveness in Christ seems to be somehow connected to the degree in which we are forgiving towards other people. Now that can be hard to do, because often harboring resentments feels much more delicious than living in forgiveness. And I think a particular danger for us at our point in cultural history is because we live in a therapeutic culture, what therapy should do, of course, is help you to examine, process, and move past the things which have done you harm. But what often seems to happen in our culture is because we're living in this kind of therapeutic-shaped world, that we are encouraged to focus again and again on all the things which have been done to us, whether major or insignificant, and to ruminate on them and ponder them and lodge them in our hearts. And the problem is that if we get stuck there, we don't live in forgiveness, we live in resentment. We actually live in a kind of narcissism. We become totally inwards-looking. And that's a dangerous place to be. Now, the, the, I think the test of how forgiving we are is often in the small things. Of course, there are huge things that happen in people's lives. Terrible things that happen to people, which raise massive questions about forgiveness. But for me, normally, it's just the day-to-day stuff in life. It's the little irritations. Am I willing to forgive those people, or do I allow resentments to build up in my heart? Do I become a resentful person, or do I become a person who lives in a forgiving way? And it is the trivial things, often I find, which can trip me up. Yesterday morning, I was doing park run in our local park. Anybody else a park runner here? No! About three of you, shame on you. I want you to experience some condemnation now rather than forgiveness. There's loads of park runs in London. Get out there on a Saturday morning. I was doing park run, and sometimes there's lots of marshals on the course, and they can be very encouraging, but there is this one place on our course in Paul Park where you have to pass four times. It's a kind of figure of eight. And the marshal on that point was an exceptionally annoying person. If you've ever done any kind of running event or anything, you know what it's like. Some encouragement is encouraging, other encouragement, encouragement is just annoying. 
She was shouting exceptionally loudly, and it had the quality simply of being patronizing rather than encouraging. Come on, you're doing so well. Smile, you're enjoying it. And as I ran past her once, twice, three times, four times, I had an almost overwhelming urge to kick her legs away <laughs> and shout, you're enjoying this! <laughs> and so even as I was running around and after the first time around thinking, she is so annoying, I was having to say to myself, forgive, forgive them. Now it's a very trivial thing, but I think that's how forgiveness often works. It is that daily, who, who is the most annoying person in your life right now? Think about that person. They might be sitting next to you. Maybe it's somebody you really love, but they're also incredibly annoying. It's that person to pray daily, forgive, forgive, forgive. Lead us not into temptation. This is a prayer of self-preservation. Lord, don't let me get into trouble. Don't let me do anything stupid today. And some of us need to pray this more than others. And, and again, think of the context. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's teaching young men. And probably young men are particularly prone to do stupid things. So he's teaching his disciples to pray, Lord, keep us. Don't let me fall into temptation. Lord, don't let me be led into sin. Lord, keep me from folly. It's a prayer I need to pray every day. Lord, lead us not into temptation. And finally, but deliver us from evil. This is asking God for rescue when evil stuff happens. And, you know, it does. Bad stuff happens. And again, this is, there's a scale here, isn't there, between the cataclysmic evil and the daily inconvenient evil. Sometimes God allows things to happen to us. 1 Peter 1.6, it says, For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's a very sobering scripture. It seems that what the Lord says through the Apostle Peter to the churches there is, it's actually been necessary for you to experience evil. Why? Sometimes we don't find out. I think sometimes it's because if we don't experience evil, we never experience what deliverance is. Lord, deliver us from evil. I think this is another way of praying, give us this day our daily bread, that daily we are looking for the Lord's deliverance. Today, Lord, deliver me from evil. Last year, uh, we as a church, we've been doing this big building project, and end of August last year, we fell foul of a financial fraud, and half a million pounds was stolen from our bank accounts, and it took over three months for that to be resolved and praise God finally that half a million pounds was paid back into our bank account but every day of that three and a half months I was praying deliver us from evil deliver us from evil that's a prayer not just to pray when somebody's stolen half a million quid from you it's a prayer to pray every day Give me this day my daily bread. This day deliver me from evil. And I think this isn't only a personal prayer. It's also one we should pray corporately, nationally. I, I saw a, a news report in the BBC last week about Amsterdam, which is, of course, notorious as a place where you go to go to the red light district. It's a place where you go to smoke weed and to sleep, sleep with prostitutes and all the rest. And that's what it's been famous for. But the authorities in Amsterdam are trying to clamp down on sex and drugs and alcohol. And they're launching a campaign to try and keep tourists away. Why? 
It said the laws will come into effect from mid-May and aim to improve livability for residents. The thing is that if you give yourself to evil, that can look like freedom. Where do you go to experience freedom? You go to the red light district in Amsterdam, the freest place on earth. But it's a miserable place to live. That's what happens if you give yourself to evil. It doesn't lead to light and to life and to love and to good things. It leads to misery. And so when we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, as a prayer for me personally, it's also a pray for us, a pray for us nationally. Lord, here, deliver London from evil. Deliver our nation from wickedness. Lord, in your mercy, come and revive us. In your mercy, in your mercy, let many, let multitudes know what it is to be forgiven people and to live in forgiveness and to put their trust in you for their daily bread rather than themselves or anything else. Lord, deliver us from evil. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This, this prayer really is, is, what are you hungry for? Grace London, what are you hungry for? Half past five on a Sunday afternoon here in Westminster. What is it you're hungering for? What is it you most need? What you most need is to know your relationship with Christ. What you most need is to put your trust in him, to find fresh faith in him for whatever stuff is happening in your life. What you most need is for him to strengthen you so that you wouldn't fall into folly, into temptation and evil. What you most need is to experience the joy of being a forgiven person. And to live in forgiveness towards others rather than resentment and bitterness. Lord, this day, give us this daily bread. You know, this church is remarkable. What has been built here over the years. And there is so much potential here. It's, you're generally younger. Most of you have got so much ability in worldly terms. So much potential for good in this part of London and beyond. In years ahead, when you're not living here and you've gone elsewhere, there's so much potential in this room for those who will step up and become leaders in churches and leaders in culture, leaders in the workplace. If that's going to happen, we need to ask God for help. We need to pray daily. Give us your daily bread. Daily. Let me not be led to temptation. Lord, today, let me be forgiven. Know your forgiveness and be forgiving towards others. Lord, deliver us from evil.